Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Hello, Sunridge. Whether you, hello, that's, that was really good. You guys are peppy today. Whether you're uh, joining us right here with this unruly crowd or you're joining us online, uh, welcome to Sunridge. And if you're a guest with us today and you don't know who I am, my name is Britt and I serve the church here as the lead pastor. Thank you so much, Carrie, for uh, reading this passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. We're just going to be coming back to it week after week and reading it, and I would encourage you to memorize this section of Scripture. I'm like, whoa, yeah, you got a long commute, get some cards out, make some Scriptures out of it, and plant this in your head. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, when you cook smoke barbecue, you cook it low and slow. And as the meat cooks, its temperature is rising. And most meats need to get to about 205, but it hits a plateau around 160 degrees. And at that point, what's happening is the water in the meat is turning to steam, and it starts to cool the meat. But the fat is rendering, and the fibers are breaking down. And if you're not patient to allow that process to occur, then your final product is going to be tough and sinewy and tasteless. But if you're patient and you let this process take its course, you will be rewarded with heaven. Brisket that is juicy that you can cut with a fork. Pulled pork that when you just shred it apart by barely touching it and it's moist and juicy and ribs that are tender, but have a little pull to them when you bite into them. Is anybody hungry right now? <laughs> what does sl- uh, smoke barbecue have to do with Second Peter chapter 1? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Christians can stall too. We hit a point, we can hit a point in which our progress slows, we become stuck as we talked about last week. And this is to, to be stuck is when the newness of faith starts to wear off. Your passion starts to die, and the influence of the Holy Spirit over us diminishes. And it's during that stall that some people just walk away from their faith. Their faith was either a fling or a thing. But some remain. They keep doing the stuff that they've always been doing. They become moral, but they can become flavorless and tough and sinewy. Does it seem like Christianity has stalled to anyone here today? The virtuous pursuit of what it means to be a Christian is in danger of being replaced by lesser things, and in some, th- in some cases, unchristian things, where virtue is forgotten or virtue is obscured. 
And the result of that is that we lack clarity and purpose as Christians living in the Temecula Valley in 2022. But I have good news for you. As we saw last week, if you haven't heard the message from last week, I encourage you to check it out. All the way back in the first century, Christians got distracted too. And the Apostle Paul encouraged Christians then to regroup and to focus on seven virtues. And he said about these virtues in verse 8, as Carrie just read, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today, as we talked about, we're going to take, last week we talked about how we're going to take one of these each week and focus on them. I want to talk about the first that Peter lists. Because if you want a faith that is vibrant and fruitful, then you should make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Goodness. If you're a Christian, someone who has placed their faith in Christ, then I want to assure you that your place in heaven is secured. We are saved by faith alone. But if you want your faith to have some tangible impact on who you are as a person or on those around you, whether it's your marriage, your family, your workplace, the community in which you live, then you need to add something to your faith, Peter says. And the first thing he lists here is goodness. You see, God gives us faith. But here Peter says that it is up to us to make every effort, which literally means to work very, very hard at to make every effort to add to your faith some things. These things won't make you a Christian. Faith does that. But they will cause you to look like a Christian. And the pursuit of this first virtue, goodness, will keep your faith from becoming stale. Peter assures us, you will have a faith that is vibrant and fruitful. Now, if you were making a list and you said, okay, Every new Christian should start to focus on some things. Here are some values or virtues that new Christians should focus on. What would, you, what would your list be? What would you start with in your list? Some of us would start with love, some of us with boldness, others with being faithful or loyal. Peter says goodness. That's the first thing that he lists. So when is the last time you woke up in the morning and in your head, you said to yourself, because I want to reflect Jesus in my family and where I'm going to work and in my neighborhood, I'm going to live out goodness. You have a definition of goodness in your notes, but rather than me just read those back to you, I want to tell you about this word that Peter uses. It's a remarkable word. It's, it's a distinctive word actually for virtue. It could be interchanged with virtue in general in classical Greek. And it came to encompass the most outstanding quality of somebody. Someone who did... Uh, 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 whew, slow down, Britt. <laughs> I hit myself a few weeks ago and disturbed some of you. Sometimes you just have to reset. Um, it can be interchangeable for like be heroic, an act of heroism. It's a divinely endowed ability to excel in courageous deeds. Now, even though Peter uses this word from classical Greek, remember that this is, he's writing from a Christian perspective. So here are some things today, and this is kind of what the main 
thing that we're going to talk about today, some, some things that we, I think we need to know about goodness as it is defined in Scripture. So first of all, goodness is defined by God. Goodness is defined by God. What do I mean by that? It means that God defines what goodness looks like. He is the source of goodness. He is the source of where goodness arises. All good is born from him. And the simplest definition that I could give or so that we can wrap our brains around is that goodness is defined by the teachings and the example of Jesus alongside a thoughtful understanding of the Bible. Remember, Jesus described himself as the good shepherd. So when Peter says add goodness, this is the framework from which he is working. The Christian ethic doesn't leave good at the level of the abstract or just a philosophical concept or one that fluctuates with the whim of culture or my personal preference in the moment. What's morally right, virtuous, or good can be different depending on our source of our values. Goodness can even be at odds with culture. And sometimes, let's be honest, Christian culture. Isn't that what Paul was indicating to his young protege, Timothy, when he wrote this in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 3? In the last days, people will not be lovers of the good. Christianity and the Bible have certainly influenced culture over the centuries. That's clear. But Paul is telling Timothy here, a young pastor, that sometimes there's going to be a conflict, a conflict over what good looks like. It's going to clash. People will not love the good. And I want you to see here that that when Paul writes this, he's really not distinguishing which people he's talking about. So I just want to note that it isn't necessarily true just because someone is a Christian, that their choice of good is one that would be defined by God as good. Nor is it automatically true that if someone is not a Christian, that they would always choose an unchristian perspective. Of good. So haven't you noticed that at times, as a Christian, as you've walked through life, that sometimes the idea of good clashes with culture? And haven't you also noticed that there have been times over the centuries where what is good, as defined by the Christian culture at the time, doesn't seem good at all? That's why we have to work from this perspective. Whatever our personal feelings are, whatever our preferences, whatever's going to be easiest for us, when we think about goodness, goodness is defined by the teachings and the example of Jesus alongside a thoughtful understanding of what Scripture says. Now, another thing about goodness. Goodness seeks to please God, to please God over above all other considerations. Again, the Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, he wrote this in 5.9, we make it our goal to please him. The Christian's goal is to please God. In other words, when I, you know, like as I live my life, 
outside of church, inside church, religious context, secular context, I should be constantly asking myself, what would make God happy? What would please God here? To me, it's kind of like when you're watching your kids, or in my case now, the grandkids, they're playing sports, you know, soccer, basketball, baseball, football. And your grandkid, in my case, makes a goal or dribbles through everybody in alley-oops a layup, you know, and you're like, you're just beaming with pride. You know, like you're, you're screaming and you don't even realize that you're a grandpa making a fool out of yourself. And the stands is like, yeah, that's my guy. That's my, that's my girl. Look at what they just did. And that's, that's what it means to please God. Sometimes I picture God kind of sitting back and going, that's my guy. I did what pleased him. The reason why it's important when we talk about goodness that for us to like specifically, explicitly say that he defines that goodness is there are many competing interests, aren't there, for what good looks like and who we're going to please. Again, the Apostle Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.4, and he says, No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. He uses like just this day-to-day thing. Like if you're a soldier, your goal is to make your commanding officer happy, to please him or her. And the truth is, we as Christians living in this day and time, as has been true of every, you know, culture and time throughout history, we face dilemmas in which we are making a choice between pleasing God or caving to social pressure to achieving success or what is most easiest for us in the moment. I mean, I could get the questions to the test in advance, couldn't I? I can look better if I just tell the story with a slight variation that shines the light on me in a good way. I can lie on my golf score. If I played golf, the opportunities to make a choice that are different than pleasing God are limitless. And because of that, choosing good can be hard. Choosing good can be hard. That's what the Apostle Paul again writes in Romans 7. Verse 18, he says, For I know that good itself doesn't dwell in me. My my goal is to, to embrace and make every effort to demonstrate goodness, to, to pursue the virtue of goodness. But I know that that goodness does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but sometimes the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Have you ever said those words? Maybe just in a prayer, not to somebody sitting next to you in church. This is the Apostle Paul, the great Paul that we read about and studied in Acts. He's saying that I'm in a constant dilemma. So what in the world would ever cause anybody, in particular a Christian, to choose something that is less than good? 
The reason it is so difficult to choose good is that there are just different value systems. They're running parallel to each other. They are in conflict with each other. And we often find ourselves jumping back and forth into those and out of those value systems as it pleases us. Can I just get personal with you for a second? Okay, so one of you, come up here. I want to talk to you, Joe. (laughs) You know, today I want to shack up with my boyfriend, and so I choose the culture, right? Like I choose the values of the culture. But tomorrow I want my boyfriend to marry me, so then I start talking about my biblical values and how we need to make this right, right? Today the person I don't like is in the news, and they're suspected of fraud, or other moral failure, so I just rant on and on and on about it, and tomorrow the person I do like is in the news for the same thing, and I cover it up and justify it. Today, life is comfortable for me, and so I'm all in, I'm all good, I'm bold Christian, and tomorrow life throws me a curveball, and I'm just looking around for who I can blame other than myself. We just jump back and forth. Goodness is defined by God, and sometimes... Choosing that good is going to be hard for even the Apostle Paul. Because sometimes choosing the good, the goodness that God has for us can seem counterproductive even to my own self-interest. Parents, this is super important for you to grasp right now. You're raising your kids in a culture that isn't always Christian-focused, and I know it's super scary for you. And, you, you know, you want your kid to be Christian? but you don't want to be a weirdo at school? And there's all these competing pressures. But you know, if we don't teach our kids to choose good as defined by Jesus and Scripture, then we are failing them. They won't have the internal compass to guide them. And I have talked with parents who who say, don't say that anymore publicly because my child's friends don't believe that. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. What are we teaching our children? Are we teaching them biblical Jesus values? You know, you, you, you watch some of the, these documentaries, these submarine vessels or those bells, they, they go deep, like a mile deep under the sea, how can they do that? It isn't just the structure. It is they pump up the internal pressure so that it can resist the outer pressure. And I'm afraid that if we don't teach our children, if we don't learn ourselves to intake the goodness that God has for us, then we will implode under the pressure of our culture. Not only is goodness defined by God, but goodness, that goodness is meant to be displayed, not hidden away. The goodness that God has given us is meant to be on display to the world. It's not meant to be a cloistered value, you know, somewhere up in a fortress like Rapunzel. And sometimes the way I hear Christians talk, the only way that you'd think that the only way to be good is just to hide away in a, in a secret little place. And if I could just be good, I'll be good if I can just stay away from all of that. 
and certainly there's an influence on Christians today, but like, is that, is that what we do? Is we just, we just run away? Or do we develop the, and allow God to develop the goodness in us? In a, in a book that we studied not so long ago, Peter's first letter, in chapter 2, verse 12, he said, live such good lives, again, goodness is here, live those good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And Peter here is insinuating that living this goodness um, can, it's going to be a challenge at times. But it can't be hidden away because it's a challenge. It needs to be displayed among the pagans because light is most needed in the dark. The goodness of God is to be on display through Christians, young and old, so that that goodness can be seen by those we know, that we work with, that we live with, that we go to school with. James writes in uh, chapter 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by what? Their good life. Show the goodness of God through your life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. By the way, did you catch the last of that? Humility. The goodness that we live is to be lived out with humility. They go together. They're not separate. And don't you, don't you think that the way that Peter is putting goodness here, when he says, you've got to make every effort to do this, he's saying that this goodness is not automatic to those of us who, who embrace faith as Christians. It's not like you become a Christian and now you're good. I mean, truly, everything about you is good. No, he says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. So we can have a faith. We can have faith without goodness. It will be a lesser faith. And it will be a stale faith. So putting goodness on display is accomplished by two things. First of all, by being good, we're going to talk about that, and then doing good. Let's talk about being good. In Luke 6.45, Jesus said, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. So, so where do good things come from? Where does the good come from? It comes from the things that we've stored up in our heart, right? And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks of what the heart is full of. The good comes from being good. The good that is on display comes from the good that is stored up in our hearts. And Jesus says the opposite is also true. So what are we storing up in our hearts? What is the likelihood you guys, that we're going to be able to put God's goodness on display when we spend all our time searching out what's wrong. Is it likely we're going to have a good marriage and a sex life when that relationship is shaped by porn? What are the chances that I'll display goodness if I constantly expose myself 
to people who just rant and rave about everything. They're just always mad and angry. What is the chance that I'm going to be able to display goodness when I expose myself even to like Christian teachers who they're just, they're just on blast all the time accusing everybody of what's wrong with them? How likely is it that my kids are going to be able to demonstrate God's goodness if I, don't, if I don't invest time in them, to talk to them about what God's goodness looks like and talk to them about the values that come from Christianity and, and encourage them to demonstrate and embrace those in a loving and humble way, the way James said it was to be done. See, all of our actions, and you know this to be true, they all begin in our, in our, in our heart and in our mind. That's why Paul writes in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it in practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Trying to display goodness without first having the goodness in us it creates a malformed goodness that ends up not being good at all. And so what I'm saying is all of us, whether you've been a Christian for three minutes or 30 years, all of us need kind of an internal compass that is pointing us forward in our lives of what, what is good. And it's so easy to get it wrong. I'm, I want you to see this story in John 9, where uh, Jesus heals a man, which would we all agree, that's a good thing? Everyone say, that's a good thing, he heals somebody? And of what, if, you know, when he does this, you would think that everybody would be rejoicing that it had happened. But in this case, it is the most religious people of that day and time that are most disturbed by this event. And the reason is not because they weren't devout or committed. It was because their idea of good was misshapen by ideologies that had nothing to do with how God would define goodness. See, in the, in the, in the religious culture of that first century, it was thought that if you had some physical malady, that was caused by sin. Blindness is one of those. And even the disciples, when they encounter the man, this is what they say to Jesus. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So, like, that, that's just, it's an assumption that we, we read that now. It's like, that's a crazy assumption, but that's how they thought. And they assumed that if something bad happens to you, it must be, have been, it must be in some way the result of the judgment of God. And, um, but they don't know the God of the Bible or the Jesus that they're standing in front of, because Jesus replies in verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Then when the healed man is brought before the religious leaders and he tells them that Jesus healed them, they declare, wrongly of course, this man is not from God. Here's the religious people saying, this person, Jesus, is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. And they demand that he agrees with them. In verse 24, give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. You say the same thing about this person as we're saying, and you will give glory to God. 
But thankfully, this guy seems to have a better internal compass than the religious leaders, and he refuses to say something like that about a person who healed him of his blindness, and the leaders turn on him, and they say the most awful things about him and to him. In verse 34, they reply, you, you were steeped in sin at birth. You're a terrible person. How dare you lecture us? And they throw him out from their presence. You guys, how upside down is that? That's crazy. How could someone who claimed to be of God be so awful and so awfully wrong? And Jesus later chastises them in Matthew 23, verse 27. He says, woe to you, these same people that, he, that were saying this about this man and what he should say, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So there is no way There's no way that if we don't have goodness in us, the life of Christ in us, there's no way that goodness is going to come out. Even though they were religious and devout and committed inside, Jesus said they were dead. Because moral goodness without a morally good heart will be morally judgmental. It becomes more just about being better than others. And because you, don't, because you don't do the things they do, or you do things that they don't. And it comes out like, look at what I'm doing, or look at what you're not doing in comparison to me. Being good on the inside comes from emulating the life and the teachings of Jesus. It, comes, it, it starts with being good. Embracing the good in our hearts. And that's what turns into the second part, doing good. And Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, that we should live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in what? In every good work. There's no way that can happen unless we have goodness in us, that we have that compass to direct us. Doing this good does not merit God's favor, It is an expression of genuine faith. That's why James writes in chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. Again, what good is it? And what James is saying here is that goodness on display, at least in the Bible, helps people. So if you want to put God's goodness on display, do things that help people. Ask the question in this situation, in this relationship, in this conflict, what will be good for people? If you want to put God's goodness on display, do good. 
I put God's goodness on display when I come home after a long day and I serve my wife by making dinner. Right, honey? You remember when I did that? That was a good day. When we help give the kids a bath, or we put them to bed while she takes a bath. I put goodness, God's goodness on display in my workplace when I show up on time, and I'm not a complainer, and I do my job. I put God's goodness on display in my social media. Watch it. Here I come. <laughs> that even though I have values and passions that are important and may be very Christian, but I say words that open a conversation, not destroy a relationship. I put God's goodness on display when I assume the good in others, and I try to understand them, because that's what helps people. So goodness is defined by God, and it is meant to be put on display, and it comes from within us, and when it is on display, it is doing things that help there's one last thought, and then I'm done. Goodness comes from God. It's not just defined by God. The goodness comes from God. And what, what makes that idea so important when it comes to rediscovering the virtue of goodness um, is we can just go back to the very first verse of this text that we're looking at over the next few weeks, 2 Peter 1.3. Notice, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life, through our knowledge of him who has called us, called us by his own glory and what? His goodness. Peter says that the, God has called us with his glory, by his glory and his goodness. So if you're a Christian today, however you came to Christ, whether it was a friend that shared it with you, you, you were at harvest, you, you were raised in a Christian home, you know, you, some evangelist, TV evangelist got you. You became a Christian at Sunridge. How, anyone is, that is a Christian, you are a Christian as the, through the direct result of God's glory and his goodness. And it is that same power that brought you to Christ, that same, that same divine power that enables us to put his goodness on display. In fact, we probably couldn't do it without him, right? It's actually the, the fruit of his Holy Spirit working within us. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When we are under the Holy Spirit's control, the most natural thing for us to do is to, to, to display the virtue of goodness. Why? Because we are under the control of God's Spirit. So goodness is not just defined by God. It's not just something that we put on display, but we are called by and empowered by God's goodness to us. That concept is reinforced throughout Scripture especially in the New Testament. Here's one, Ephesians 2.10. We are God's handiwork. You guys know this verse. Created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
So you ever wonder, like, God, what's the big picture for me? What am I, what am I supposed to do with my life? What am I going to be when I grow up? I'm still wondering that myself. You know, what, what do you want me to do in this situation? How am I, like, what kind of dad am I supposed to be? What kind of mom? What kind of husband? What do you want me to do right now when I come home and we're, we're in an argument? Or I'm sitting at home and I don't have anyone to argue with. What do you, what do you have for me? Paul writes that each of us are God's handiwork. He's, he's put us together. We are the result of, what, of something God created. And he created us for what? All that handiwork, all the investment that God has made in you and me, in the miracle of birth and creation, and like he did that so that we would, we're created to do good works. That's, our, that's, that's what we're about. That's what we're here for. And here's the thing. He says, God has all of those opportunities in front of you. He's prepared you in advance to do that. He has all these opportunities out in front of you, whether you like that or not. Sometimes I'm like, God, if you just get on my plan, we could, this would work a lot better for us. But he says, I made you, I created you for a purpose to do good works, and guess what? I have a whole series of things out in front of you that all of this that I put into you, it's also that you can show good works. What if we looked at our lives through that lens? When we talk about goodness, what if we just looked at our lives through the lens that God made me? He, he made me for good works. And there's an opportunity right after church today to do good works. I'm not signing you up for anything, so don't just relax with that statement. What a, what, a, what a difference that would make in my life, probably in yours as well, if I approach my life from that perspective. That God has something for me. That everything he's put into me is designed so that when I intersect that opportunity that God had for me, that I demonstrate his good works that he has empowered me to do and prepared me to do. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I have one more scripture for you um, because I think this kind of all goes back to like, again, like the basic things of how we look at our lives, what God is doing in us before he does something through us. And there's a psalm, Psalm 23, verse 6, says, Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life. Now, are all your days good? Mine aren't. But what the psalmist is saying, is like I, I have the utmost confidence that God's goodness is in my life. And it's following me wherever I go. I can't get away from it. And even if there's hills, even if there's challenges, even if there's conflict, even if something doesn't go the way I want it to go, even if people don't appreciate me, even if I'm in a conflict and it's an ongoing conflict and it just goes on and on and on, it doesn't seem that there's ever going to be an end. And even if you're struggling and it's like, God's goodness is right behind you. It's following you. It's your shadow. I want to live that way. 
Isn't that what we want as people who have faith in the God of the universe? If that's what we want, then if you have faith, add to it. Add to it goodness. And let his goodness fill you up so much. Think about it. Pray about it. Read about it. Be around other people who tell you about it. And let that goodness just like fill you up till you can't take anymore. And you know what will come out? Goodness. Everything that God has been putting into you, like you won't be able to stop it. His goodness will be on display and your faith will be vibrant and fruitful. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.